Welcome to Relentless Truth with John Warren, the podcast that extracts truth from a wide range of topics, revealing who God is, who we are, and how we relate to each other. Now, here's John with this week's powerful and practical insights. Welcome to Relentless Truth. I'm John Warren. It's good to be with you again. Please like, share, review, and subscribe to Relentless Truth. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Please go to our website, johnwarrenmedia.com, for more information about our work. And don't hesitate to send along an email to me at john at johnwarrenmedia.com, or you can just use our contact form on our website. Well, it's good to be with you again, uh, continuing to... Uh, talk about God to answer the question, who is God? Seems like a simple undertaking, but we've, uh, we've been talking about this for weeks. Uh, next week, God willing, I'm going to talk about the current state of things in the economy. Uh, it's about time to do another update there because, wow, are the signals confusing and uh, we'll we'll talk about that and maybe some politics and uh, maybe some of the candidates' views on some things uh, uh, coming up uh, next week. And then we'll resume these attributes of God for a couple of weeks and and then we'll be done with this series. We're going to start a series on Philippians and Colossians, Paul's epistle to the church. The churches at Philippi and Colossae. Uh, we'll, we'll be doing that uh, coming up in uh, in a few weeks. So uh, today our topic is a beautiful one, one that uh, we cannot do complete justice to, pun intended, um, because we talked about we've talked about God's justice. Uh, now we're going to talk about God's holiness and majesty. So you'll recall when we talked about the wrath of God a few weeks ago, we talked about the juxtaposition. I particularly liked Steve Lawson's analogy where he was diamond shopping and, and he said, you know, the diamond looked kind of ordinary until, until the guy who was showing him the diamond pulled out the black velvet background and mounted the diamond on the background. And then it was as if every light in the room went to the diamond and the diamond just it had this beautiful, fiery glow. And he, he was really talking about the juxtaposition of God's, God's grace, mercy, love, and other attributes against the backdrop of his wrath. Well, similarly, today, as we look at God's holiness and majesty, we're going to see the severity of our sin. We'll, we'll see that God forgives sinners of their sins, but he does not simply forgive or pardon or just look the other way uh, uh, from sin, on sin. He doesn't somehow ignore it or conclude that we're good enough based on something good or well-intended in us. Every time in Scripture, if you notice, including the Lord's Prayer, that forgiveness of sin, or our trespasses in that case, is referenced. It is the forgiveness of our sin, or the sin of man, 
rather than sin itself that is talked about. God forgives sinners through the atonement of Jesus Christ alone, based on his merit and his sacrificial conquering of sin and death alone. God's holiness is entirely incompatible with our sin, or or with, with sin, period. God's holiness is declared around his throne day and night. The angels declare his holiness. And, and that there, there are just some concepts we're going to talk about today that are just really mind-boggling. I mean, they're, they're just awe-inspiring, and I, I, I don't want to use all those superlatives, but, but I mean, they're, they're appropriate here. They're, they're, this, is, this is as good as it gets. Isaiah 6 starts out in the year that King Uzziah died. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. He's describing, Isaiah's describing the seraphim now. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And verse 4, And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. We'll come back to that passage and kind of take a closer look at all that in in a few minutes. But for now, let's note this proclamation around God's throne. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory by this seraphim, this this highest of, of, of angels. He is, God is, absolute purity, unblemished, even by the shadow of sin. We read in 1 John 1, uh, verse 5, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. We see again in the book of the Revelation, written by John, Revelation 4, verses 6 and following, and around the throne on each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind, the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, O our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. And then just one more in Revelation 15, 
Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your acts, your righteous acts, have been revealed. This word translated holy is agios, A-G-I-O-S, is the English spelling of the Greek word. It means separated, most holy, sacred, pure, morally blameless. The word is often used even to reference the Holy Spirit in Scripture. Note note that these angels, Steve Lawson talks about this beautifully, aren't crying out love, 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 or grace, 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 or mercy, 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 or God's other attributes. The English translation, Lawson says, doesn't do justice to the Greek and Hebrew and Isaiah and the Revelation. The holy, holy, holy declaration has the idea of holy, holier, holiest of all beings. God is identified in heaven by this attribute more than any other attribute of God. His Son is holy. His Word is holy. The entire Godhead is holy. Well, when we try to explain God's holiness, there are really two primary meanings or or uses of the holiness of God in Scripture. And they go together beautifully. I don't want to treat them like they're two entirely separate things, but the first is that God is separated. He's apart from, set apart is the idea, uh, really above his, his creation, his, his creations, his created beings, his all of creation. Holy is to separate or to cut so that two things are removed from each other. Holiness means that God is separated above us. He is superior to us. He is He is high and lifted up, transcendent, supreme, royalty, regalness, dignity, majestic in his kingly glory. There's a Puritan I quote from time to time named Sharnock, C-H-A-R-N-O-C-K. He said, power is God's hand or arm, omniscience his eye, mercy his heart, eternity his duration, but holiness is his beauty. And he is lovely to those who have been delivered from sin's captivity. Isn't that the truth? God is more often called holy in Scripture than almighty. His mighty name or his wise name are not really referenced in Scripture that way. But his great name, his holy name, are, are often references used to describe God. This is the greatest title of honor. The majesty and the reverence of his name are seen in this title. God, it's inter- interesting, in Psalm eighty nine thirty five, God swears by his holiness because that is a fuller expression of himself than anything else, Psalm eighty nine thirty five, Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. This, this is kind of an attribute of attributes. It's a, it's a transcendental attribute of God. As we've discussed before, each, each attribute runs through the rest and are part of the essence of God. But we can see clearly here, it seems easier to me, more straightforward to see that God's holiness is in every part of his other attributes. 
it's 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 integral. It's it's the E is of one substance, one essence, and it's hard for us not to use anthropomorphism to ascribe human characteristics to God as we talk about Him, because we just kind of come up short in our ability to describe this. But we see that, in short, we see that His holiness per- permeates everything about him every attribute his grace is holy his mercy is holy his love is holy his omniscience is holy his omnipotence his omnipresence his transcendence and his eminence and his goodness and so on his his being just and righteous all of his attributes have holiness in them completely this really, the, the, the second meaning of, of God or usage of God's holiness is his moral perfection. So first he's, he's set apart, he's separate from us. And then, and then we, we, we sometimes kind of cringe when we, when we say that, that it, holiness just means set apart. Well, no, it, it, it really has the idea of his righteousness as well. All of his de- decrees are holy and perfect. If you look at this song of Moses that was sung by Israel in Exodus 15, you see that um, in, in uh, chapter uh, 15, verse 4, Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. This is, this is the remembering that we're supposed to do, that Israel failed to do sometimes. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. Now, you're, you're going to see as we read this, other attributes of God. This is a beautiful passage that just blends all of these attributes beautifully. And again, language fails us as we describe them. Verse 8, at the blast of your nostrils, the water piled up the floods stood up in a heap the deeps congealed in the heart of the sea the enemy said i will pursue i will overtake i will divide the spoil my desire shall have its fill of them i will draw my sword my hand shall destroy them you blew with the wind the sea covered them they sank like lead in the mighty waters now listen to this who is like you o lord among the gods who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? What a question. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You've led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, where your 
hands have established, the Lord will reign forever and ever. In verse 11, that verse that said, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods, who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonder, wonders. I, th- I think it's worth pointing out that majestic is adar, A-D-A-R. It's a verb to be great, majestic, glorious. It's interesting that many of these words that are used in these passages in the Old Testament are have the other words in the passage, sometimes even in the same sentence, sometimes immediately modifying each other in their definition. So that word majestic is, is really to be glorious. That word wonders, doing wonders at the end of that verse is a noun, pele, P-E-L-E. It has the idea of awesome, extraordinary, a hard to understand thing, specifically of God's acts and judgment and redemption. Awesome in verse 11, yare, Y-A-R-E, to revere, fear, be afraid, be afraid. And glorious deeds is tehila, T-E-H-I-L-L-A, praise, adoration, and thanksgiving. God is awe-inspiring, stunning, breathtaking. That, that just comes up short even. We, we are merely pedestrian. There's a, a prayer of Hannah's in 1 Samuel 2 that I just want to read a section of starting in verse 1. It says, and Hannah prayed and said, my heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. Notice this imperative in verse 3. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. Scripture talks a lot about sin proceeding out of our mouth. This, this response to who God is, there's none holy like the Lord, for there's none beside you, there's no rock like our God. That word rock, by the way, is, is like a boulder or a rock cliff. If you've ever seen the Grand Canyon, you've, you've, you've seen a, 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 good, a good metaphor, the, 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 this metaphor pictured on the rock wall there. Or if you've gone to the Pacific Ocean, you've probably seen the the uh, rock walls that just uh, uh, fall into the ocean. And he goes on, the, the, the bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. And then you go down to verse 10, and it says, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven, The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Here here again, we see his other attributes, his justice displayed, his power displayed, even as we talk about his holiness. This, This Hannah's prayer is my prayer. It's our prayer today as we think about the holiness and majesty of our God. It's interesting in Revelation 1, the revelation and we see in verse 17 of of chapter 1 
something very interesting. Let's start in verse verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And this is John talking about this, this heavenly vision that he saw. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands stands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like wool, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last, I'm the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things you've seen, you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. Can you imagine if, if God appeared to us, we would be overcome by his holiness. We, Steve Lawson said, we would lose consciousness. We would burn up. This is why we'll have glorified bodies in heaven. You know, the church makes itself weak when we distill everything to horizontal relationships, don't we? And, and there's nothing wrong with talking about horizontal relationships. Relationships on this earth are important. I don't mean to diminish them. But when we think about the holiness of God, that's a different matter altogether. When we really answer the question, who is God? Well, we've discussed anthropomorphism here, that ascribing to God human characteristics. We, we tend to think of God as like us, ascribing human traits to him. Similarly, we, we, we describe sometimes our relationship with God much like that of a friend. Horizontal metaphors don't begin, really, to capture the real answer to the questions, who is God, who is man, and how does God relate to man? Isaiah 6, which we just read a portion of, is about the holiness and majesty of God. We read a, a, a small section of this chapter earlier. King Uzziah had ruled over Israel for 52 years. He became blinded by his own pride, as you probably know, and God struck him with leprosy. Well, Isaiah turned to God and he was given a vision of the true king. We, we get a, gr a glimpse of God's holiness here. If you've read R.C. Sproul's book, The Holiness of God, you're familiar with Isaiah 6. I just read this part of it. Let me read it again, starting in verse one. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, and two with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And then here's the rest. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, this is Isaiah talking, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Verse 6, then one of the seraphim flew to me. Can you imagine that? 
having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. And he said, Go and say to the people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And then at the end, he says, the holy seed, at the end of verse 13, the holy seed is its stump after he talked about an oak whose stump remained when it is felled. Seraphim are the burning ones. They're, they're the highest angelic beings. We don't know a lot about them. They're, they're obviously somewhat human looking in, in form. They have six wings. They're, they're not talked about a lot in scripture, but they two covered their faces, unable to look at God's glory, obviously. Two covered their feet, and two with they flew with two of them. One in particular is referenced as flying in this scene that Isaiah describes. This word glory, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory in verse 3 is the revelation or sharing of his holiness. The whole earth is full of his holiness, his, his magnificence. In verse 5, there's a description of a man of unclean lips. Isaiah is describing himself as having unclean lips. We've seen this throughout scripture, that this, this represents an unclean heart. Then he says, for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts, in verse 5. It would be a devastating experience, wouldn't it? To stand before the face of God. Devastating to a human. Note that Isaiah goes from despair in verse 5 to send me in verse 8. Verse 5 says, and I said, woe is me for I'm lost for I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people with unclean lips for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. And then down in verse eight, he says, and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and, and who will go with us? Then I said, here I am, send me. Well, what happened between this despair, woe is me, and here I am, send me? Well, what happened is, is atonement. Verse six, then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Commentators agree that coal in verse 6 symbolizes the altar from which it came, that the penalty of sin was paid by a substitute offered in the sinner's place. That word altar in verse 6 is a place of slaughter or burnt offering. This is the symbol of God's redemption pictured here. It is the cross of Jesus Christ. It's applied to Isaiah's lips and is assuring him of personal forgiveness. Verses 5 through 8 beautifully describe our hopelessness in sin, the atonement and redemption of Jesus Christ, and the change wrought in us as a result. 
Now, at the end of this section, I, I you know, went out of my way to read that last little verse, the, 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 the one about the, the hope of the holy seed. This is a reference to the godly remnant, remnant in Israel. This is a reference to God's infinite promise in light of the context provided by verse 3. Well, let's move on to the, the second meaning or the second usage of God's holiness in Scripture. We talked about it earlier, his moral perfection. All of his decrees are holy and perfect. He can take no pleasure in unrighteousness. We see in Psalm eleven four, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes, his eyelids test the children of man. Again, in Hebrews 2, verse 20, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Note how the psalmist in Psalm 5 describes God's holiness and our response down in verse 4, for you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. How about that? You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man, but I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me, for there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. You've probably read Romans 3 or been with us through our study of Romans 3. You know that Paul is quoting this section. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them that they, those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. There's even a separation of us and God in heaven. There will be a separation between us and his throne. These are beautiful promises in Psalm 5. Well, we can look at Scripture and see God's holiness displayed in his works. Psalm 145, verse 17, The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. That word kind has the idea of faithful, kind, or holy. You remember in Genesis 1:31, all that he made was pronounced good. His holiness is even displayed in creation. Even the angels creation had an element of his holiness. God's holiness is also explained in his law. So it's explained, it's displayed in his works, but it's also displayed in his law. Sometimes we don't see that. God's law forbids sin of all types, secret desires, covert acts, refined, and even the grossest of sins. The intent of the mind and, and as well as the pollution of the body. They're all sinful and forbidden. Romans 7:12. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. God's imperatives, the laws of God are holy and righteous and good. Holy here is the word that 
we discussed earlier, agios, and it's commonly translated holy. It was has the idea of separated and morally right, as does righteous, as you know, and good in this verse we just read in, in Romans 17. We see in Psalm 19, this is just a beautiful section. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. But most importantly today, God's holiness is displayed at the cross. The atonement displays God's infinite holiness and abhorrence of sin. Sin must be hateful, hideously so, for God to punish punish it so fully when it was imputed to his son at the cross. The wrath of God loosed upon his son is the ultimate demonstration of his wrath. It is more powerful than the sentence of all others, including demons and all of mankind. God has often forgiven sinners, but he never forgives or or just looks the other way with respect to sin. And the sinner is only forgiven on the ground of another having borne his punishment. We see God's holiness in the cross of Jesus Christ. We see this through all of Scripture and I know you're familiar with these passages, but Hebrews 9, 21 and 22. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood, both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Then First Peter 1, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. We were ransomed, purchased with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead, and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. And then Colossians 2, uh, verse 9. It, it, uh, well, let's go back to verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. Isn't that, isn't that true? According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. In other words, don't become captive by things that are not according to Christ. For in him, the fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, that that idea of being incorporated with him, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. 
and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Amen. Isn't that just beautiful? Having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. I want to talk just for a couple of minutes about the majesty of God. It's really part of the holiness of God, isn't it? It just simply means greatness. As used in scripture, it means the greatness of God. But look at Psalm 93. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He is put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established and it shall never be moved. Your throne is established from old. You are from everlasting. This word majesty is the idea of rising or lifting up or pride, good pride, healthy pride, excellent things. And established is this idea of being firm, as you know, or being stable. It's really interesting in Psalm 145, and I'm going to close with this. Verse 5, on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. Did you hear that? On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They will speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. Majesty here in verse 5, on the glorious splendor of your majesty, it's a different word from the one that was used and also translated majesty in Psalm 93 that we read just a minute ago. This has the idea of splendor or vigor. And splendor, it says, on the glorious splendor of your majesty, splendor has the idea of, of, of splendor or majesty. Uh, glorious splendor and majesty are all three nouns in, in the Hebrew, on the, on the glorious splendor of your majesty. Glorious could have even been translated splendor or glory. The splendid splendor of your splendor is the idea the psalmist is communicating. Or the majestic majesty of your majesty. Or the glorious glory of your glory. Wondrous works has the idea of to be marvelous or surpassing, extraordinary or separated by distinguished action. The psalmist is using language that implies exponentially significant majesty here. Awesome has the idea of fearing or or trembling or to be afraid or to stand in awe, to be be morally or, or causally frightened. Righteousness is justice, as you know, or moral rightness. This, this section in Psalm 145 just paints a beautiful picture of the majesty of God and our response to it. They will speak of the might of your awesome deeds and I will declare your greatness. That's what I want my life to be all about. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. So 2 Peter 1 is kind of a New Testament version of the same thing, same concept. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths. I'm in verse 16 of 2 Peter 1. Uh, 
when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice born from heaven, for we were with him in the holy mountain. That word majesty is, again, his greatness, his magnificence. His majesty is beautiful. His holiness is beautiful. Today, we rarely think of divine majesty. We rarely think of God's holiness. We tend to focus on a personal God who is like us. We tend to think of a weak, inadequate, ineffective, and even pathetic God because we don't know the true God of the Bible. God is both personal and majestic, both imminent and transcendent. Scripture reveals thoughts of God that aren't small, but are great. God is majestic, even in his very personal nature. We see this from the beginning in Genesis, uh, where he walks with Adam and Eve, and he asks questions, he he comes down from heaven to interact with his creature, creatures, and he speaks in very personal terms throughout all of Scripture, and yet he is holy, he is set apart, he is separate. I hope this is encouraging to you. This, this God that we're describing as we walk through these attributes is our Lord God Almighty. He is Jehovah. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. This is life-changing to us. These principles alter the way we see man. When we see God properly, we have a properly high view of God according to Scripture. It changes us. Now, I mentioned horizontal relationships, and I said very quickly, they're also important. Well, they are. This knowledge of God impacts the way we live. We, when we humble ourselves under Scripture, come under Scripture and its instruction, and we see the true living God with all of these attributes, especially today, we're focused on his holiness and majesty. It changes the way we treat other people as we humble ourselves and do what Paul said to do in Romans 12 and outdo each other in showing each other kindness. This, these truths are just beautiful, and I'm glad you have... Uh, participated in by listening the uh, these this study of the attributes of God. We're going to, as I mentioned earlier, come back and next week we're going to uh, take a break from these attributes and talk about the economy and politics a little bit. And then we will resume for a couple of weeks and then we will start a new series on uh, Philippians and Colossians. I think you'll enjoy that study. I'm amazed at the number of you who are listening and grateful that you do so. I wish you would take a moment and maybe send an email to some friends or a, or a social media message with a, a link to johnwarrenmedia.com and ask them to listen to this podcast. It grows organically. We don't have sponsors, as you know. This is a This is a personal ministry that uh, we want to advance, and we want, in doing so, to advance God's kingdom, to glorify Him through this work. So thank you for that. Thank you for listening. I hope you'll come back next week. Uh, please like, share, review, and subscribe to Relentless Truth. And I look forward to being with you again next time.
Thanks for listening to Relentless Truth with John Warren. Please consider sharing this podcast and subscribe to receive future episodes. Connect with John regarding your comments, questions, and show ideas through johnwarrenmedia.com or at John Warren Media on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. That's all for this episode. Join us next week for another edition of Relentless Truth with John Warren.